Hey, Urban Farm Podcast listeners. If you're as passionate about preserving the bounty of each season as we are, hey, I canned my first peaches at the age of 18, and that was a long time ago, then you're going to love what our friends over at Denali Canning have in store for you. They're on a mission to spread the love and knowledge of food preservation, and they're inviting you to join the journey for free. Right now, Denali Canning is offering free canning lids to anyone who wants to dive deeper into the world of food preservation. Yes, you heard that right, absolutely free. It's the perfect opportunity for both seasoned canners and those curious about starting. Denali is about quality, reliability, and supporting the canning community, ensuring that you get the best results every time you preserve. So why not give it a try? Visit DenaliCanning.com forward slash free to claim your free lids and start your preserving adventures today. That's DenaliCanning.com forward slash free. You're listening to the Urban Farm Podcast, your partner in the grow your own food revolution. Whether you've just been introduced to urban farming or you're a lifelong advocate, we're sure you'll leave feeling more informed, equipped, and empowered to dig deeper into the soil of your local food economy. With you every step of the way, here's your host, Greg Peterson. Today we have Justin Cutter on the show to talk about Compass Green and urban farming. Justin has a diverse array of life experiences that have added to his knowledge and skill base. From three years as a monk in India, interesting, to living and working on a schooner in Hawaii, I want that job, to working as co-director of programs in Japan for the David Lynch Foundation, he has always pursued work for the betterment of humankind and the environment. Working closely with John Jevons, the founder of Grow Biointensive Sustainable Agriculture, in 2009 and 2010, Justin helped found the Green Belt Team for teaching biointensive sustainable farming in developing nations. Then he set up the mini farm site for their internship on California's Mendocino Coast. After that, he started Compass Green to bring sustainability education to at-risk youth in the USA and has so far taught 36,000 students in 30 states. What a background. Welcome to the show today, Justin. Thanks a bunch, Greg. I'm happy to be here. Absolutely. So I shared a bit about you. Can you fill in the blanks for us and share more about the path you took to get to where you're at now? Oh, my goodness. Well, it was uh, definitely not a direct route, as you could probably tell. I studied uh, Vedic science in college and was reading the Vedic literature in Sanskrit. And from there, it just seemed like a natural course for me to want to go to India and kind of investigate uh, myself and the universe on a, a little bit deeper of a basis. So that's the little bit about being a monk that uh, wow. you mentioned. Um, Did you grow but, food when you were being a monk? Uh, no, no, no okay. I just ate food. Oh, and, yeah, perfect. <laughs> uh, yeah, when you spend most of the day with your eyes closed and you only open them to eat, uh, definitely food becomes a real focus point in your life. Right. Um, but yeah, I've always been a really avid eater, as my mother would be able <laughs> to attest to. Um, and she always laid a strong emphasis on organic food. So I think I had that seed planted in me from a pretty early age. But yeah, after the uh, after the time in India and as a monk, I, I 
spent a couple of wandering years um, in Quebec, Canada, and then living on a schooner in Hawaii. And that was actually where I first really had my, my hands in the soil. Um, on a, I, hold on. Hands in the soil on a schooner in Hawaii. No, I, I guess you, yeah, good correction. Hands <laughs> in the soil off the schooner. Oh, got um, it. All right, cool. I, I was saving up my money. And so I would come ashore one day a week and work on this organic farm. And in return, they would give me um, pretty much all the vegetables I needed for the week. And then I would kayak back out to my schooner and, uh, and eat it over the course of the week and then be working on the boat and then come back out the next week. So wow. that was my first real experience with it. Wow, how cool is that? It was pretty wonderful. Um, and then later in Japan, got to experience some different types of sustainable farming, a little bit of the Fukuoka no-till method, yep. also learning about, uh, about EM, they called it there, effective microorganisms, right. and, uh, and how those can benefit the soil. So start kind of uh, just start following my interest with it, even though I was still doing other projects. And then it was through a very odd, you know, kind of roundabout way that I, I became fortunate enough to meet up with John Jevons, uh, the founder of Biointensive Sustainable Agriculture, and ended up working on his farm and living there. And after a little while of that, he asked me to uh, start the Greenbelt team to train people to go to developing nations and start sustainability centers. Wow. That, you and, know, when I read about John Jevons, it's like, he's one of my heroes. I mean, you know, this guy's he, been doing it forever. And... It's like, wow, that's cool. Yeah, it was really exciting. He's a very interesting person, very Yoda-esque. Oh, wow. Uh, yeah, yeah, he's got this incredibly slow manner of speech. Uh, and then he just strikes you with his uh, his wit. But he he really considers what he says carefully and takes time to try and deliver the perfect answer. And so... You'll rarely hear him say things like you're doing that wrong or, you know, that is actually a bad way to do things. Instead, he'll say something like, well, that's non-optimal and um, perhaps you should put your energy in this direction. But uh, I just fell in love with it. I've all, my, my main passion has always been the outdoors and I you know, grew up backpacking in the wilderness you know, with my family. And when I heard John speak for the first time, the thing that really lodged in my mind was when he said that uh, in order for it to be trademark stamped biointensive, you have to keep half of your land wild. Oh, you wow. To, yeah, you have to leave 50% wild, and that's in order to preserve the genetic diversity and um, and keep all the pollinators there and keep your, your managed garden healthy. But uh -huh. as soon as I heard him, you know, speak out for the wilderness like that, uh -huh. even from a farming perspective, um, I knew that this guy had something worth listening to. Wow. And it certainly was. Yeah, I'm sure. I'm sure. And you spent a couple of years there. Yeah, um, I did. I was there on his farm in Willits for, for a little while, and then I moved over to the Mendocino Coast and started a teaching farm there, right uh, right just south of the town of Mendocino. Anybody listening to this should definitely go check it out. It's really beautiful. And that's where they're still training people uh, on the Greenbelt team to be able to go to developing nations and start sustainability centers. Uh, it's a six-month internship program. It's very, very uh, compact and really, really loaded up. But it was very exciting. And uh, and after six months of starting that and uh, also going through the internship myself, I started traveling and teaching in colleges. And wow. 
Yeah, it was fun. Um, took so, off. One, sorry, go ahead. Yeah, before we before we go off of this topic, I have th this just struck me. I want what was one of the most profound things that you learned working with uh, with uh, John Jevons for two years? Just something profound. I know I'm putting you on the spot here. Yeah, um, you certainly are. I mean, definitely that you always have to start with the soil. Uh, everything happens in the mm -hmm. soil. Mm -hmm. And then also the there's eight points of biointensive agriculture. Right. And the last one of them is that it's a whole system. Mm. And that part was really, really profound to me um, because the other points are like deep soil preparation, companion planting, um, use of open pollinated seeds, things like that, that seem really practical. And then the last one, that it is a whole system, seems like kind of a, a hippie throwaway point, right? but it really is, uh, is very important actually because you have to look at everything that is going into your garden and really consider it as an ecosystem that's connected to larger ecosystems. And that kind of became for me not only uh, a really useful tool in thinking about farming, but also a motto and a, uh, a way of thinking about the world at large and our connection to it and the way that we interact with any system. Perfect. And are you familiar with the word permaculture? Of course, yes. Have you done a permaculture design course yet? I have not yet. I uh, when I started the Greenbelt team, um, started with two other people. Uh -huh. One of them who had a much larger permaculture background, and so some of the work on the farm that we uh, created was with permaculture design influence. Perfect. Uh, but I haven't yet take, taken the course myself. I was recently living in Bolinas, right next to RDI, one of the big permaculture centers. Uh -huh. So I definitely need to get over uh, there and actually take the full course. I'm finding it, it, it's very interesting. You know, 25 years ago when I did my permaculture design course, nobody knew about it. Now people are taking it. My business partner, Kari, is taking a permaculture design course, and she's two weekends into it. And I said to her, Kari, you know, is there anything new here? And she says... No, not really. It's just confirming a lot of things for me. So what I'm finding these days is that you probably already know permaculture. Yeah, I, I would guess that that's probably true. Um, definitely uh, when I have looked into it a little bit more, I find that the use of biointensive uh, technique with permaculture design is one of the most effective things out there. Um, that, by the way, actually does bring me to another point that I really loved of John Jevons and that's that he said that the last thing he wants is for the whole world to do biointensive agriculture. That really? That just, yeah, really. Um, that would just be another form of monoculture, he oh, says, yeah. that we need to have different systems out there and that uh, if we're going to sustain ourselves, there will probably be a mix of agroforestry and permaculture and Fukuoka no-till method and uh, indigenous um, Yep. Asian, blue-green algae, wet rice farming, all types of different things, but that we can't just have one system. Yeah. But yeah, getting back to your point about me already knowing it, I think that that is one of the uh, core foundations of anything that is true, that you are not learning it, you're just recognizing it. Yeah, perfect. That's a profound statement in itself. Yeah, so, well, you know, those years as a monk did pay off a little bit. <laughs> there you go. There you go. Compass Green, tell me about that, because you started a moment ago, and so tell me about that. Yeah, so I was traveling and teaching in colleges, uh, teaching workshops on biointensive, but then as part of it, I would also give a lecture the evening before the workshop 
about why it's important we need to uh, to start growing our food in a more sustainable way and started lecturing a little bit about the really big things that are happening in our world in agriculture right now. Uh, dead zones forming where rivers carry agriculture uh, waste into the ocean and uh, soil loss and um, methane gases produced from, from our livestock production, things like that. And then I would go ahead and the next day teach people how they could grow food in a way that would just avoid and cut out all of that. Mm -hmm. But the experience that I had was incredibly enjoyable. In fact, I realized it was too enjoyable because what I was doing was just preaching to the choir. Right. Everybody who was at the presentation were people who would see a poster saying, uh, biointensive in our global food situation and they would think oh that sounds cool I'm gonna to come to that lecture mm -hmm. and so everybody there was already kind of on the right track right and it became abundantly clear that if I actually wanted to make a real difference and kind of redirect uh, our country away from some some pretty hazardous forms of agriculture then I was going to have to reach the people who didn't want to hear it who wouldn't care about it, who would in fact probably think that it was just a load of, uh, of crap and not the good crap of manure, yeah. but the bad crap. Hmm. And so I, uh, I went ahead and thought with a buddy of mine from high school about how to deal with that. And we came up with this idea of putting a greenhouse on the back of a truck and just making something that looked totally weird and was engaging to the audience and then being able to drive that program to the areas where people were least likely to be interested or to have any access to sustainability education. So hold on a minute. I want to make sure I heard you correctly. You said a greenhouse on a truck. Oh, yeah. Did I not mention that yet? Wow. I've got a 18-foot greenhouse on the back of a box truck and uh, call the whole thing Angie. Wow. So do we have a picture of that? We need to get a picture of that for the for this data page on this. Yeah, definitely. Um, certainly on my Facebook page or Instagram or also Perfect. our website. That. Wow. So tell me more about that. So I, uh, after traveling around and thinking really hard on uh, on how to get this going, I did a very Justin thing to do at the time and decided, okay, well, I'm going to take a couple of months on a boat. Went down to the Caribbean, went sailing through a hurricane, had some crazy experiences, and then went up and met my high school buddy, Nick Runkle, where he was living in Brooklyn, New York. Mm -hmm. um, after being there for a week and a half, we'd solidified all the details that we'd talked about on the phone, put together a plan for a Kickstarter fundraising campaign, uh -huh. and we launched it. Um, we had four very, very, very crazy weeks of fundraising, <laughs> but we came out the other end with our uh, requirement of $27,000 to buy this truck and turn it into a greenhouse. greenhouse. Wow, I'm getting chills. Yeah, it was a really, really wild time. Um, we were, you know, I was bouncing around Brooklyn, staying in different lofts and warehouses, and then at the end of this, which it really was close, and I don't know if you're familiar with Kickstarter, but if you don't meet your fundraising goal, then you don't get any of the money. Right. So we we absolutely had to make it, which, by the way, I think is a good thing because yeah. you, know, you, you set that goal for a reason and the project won't happen otherwise. 
Com- um, so I'm looking, I'm on your website here, compassgreenproject.org, and yep. it's flashing through these pictures. So obviously you're, you guys drove this across the country. Yeah? It looks like you're in different places than just uh, New York City. That's right. Yeah, actually, uh, immediately after uh, the, the fundraising period ended, we bought the truck and headed down to North Carolina where we knew someone who could help us convert it to run on waste vegetable oil. Nice. Yeah, definitely a requirement for me to be excited was that I was not uh, polluting the earth even more. So convert it to run on French fry oil uh, down in Asheville, North Carolina, then went over to Greensboro where another friend had a uh, or was working in an art collective. Uh And we borrowed his tools for about two weeks and built (laughs) the greenhouse. And then we drove up to a friend's farm in Vermont, um, planted all of our plants with seedlings that we'd started in, you know, these tiny little uh, bins before the greenhouse was even built. Uh And then uh, six weeks later, we were teaching just before the end of the school year in 2011 at a school in the Bronx. And then from there, went and taught at summer camps around New England over the summer, joined the Right to Know March for GMO labeling from Brooklyn to DC in the early autumn. And then we continued and the truck hasn't actually been back to, uh, to New York since then. I've made several circuits around the United States, done more focused tours in the South, the Midwest, uh, where I'm from, and also a ton on the West Coast. Wow, this is incredible. These pictures are just absolutely fantastic and there are hundreds of kids in these pictures so you're you're reaching out to the young people yeah oh yeah we well we're certainly photographing the young people i don't know if you've seen a high school student recently but they aren't the most picturesque people Uh, (laughs) i actually do prefer to teach high school students Uh because i personally love going very deeply into uh the finer points of sustainability but (laughs) <laughs> on the website and on our Facebook page, mostly are just pictures of the little kids because ah, hey, they're cute. There you go. So where where's the truck at today? On you know where's it at today? Today the truck is outside my house here in Oakland, California. Mm-hmm. Um, just actually did some work on the engine, so we're actually halfway through our fall tour of the Bay Area right now. We've taught uh, almost three thousand students so far. And we've got another two and a half thousand students to go in November. Wow. You ever ever going to bring it to Phoenix, Arizona? Yeah, actually. Um, I'm planning an Arizona tour for the spring. Perfect. So you need to make sure that you stay in contact with me. Um, I have a super big reach in the Valley of the Sun. So let me know and we'll get the word out here because this this is, yeah. Wow. I'm just, I'm sitting here looking at this and it's just like amazing work that you guys are doing. So what are you teaching these kids? Um, so we're, we're educating first about some of the problems that we're facing uh, as a human species with mm-hmm. our, our food production, um, making people aware of things that they by and large really don't know. The fact that, you know, when they're taking a bite of their potato chips, or their corn chips, or they're going to their favorite fast food restaurant, there's a good chance that they are contributing to the dead zone in the Gulf of Mexico, which Mm. is uh, 9,000 square miles. Or the fact that when they're eating their breakfast or their lunch, the food that they're consuming uh, took about 24 pounds of, here in California, 24 pounds of soil to produce. Wow. The fact that we've only got about 
at this rate of decreasing soil, about 38 to 40 years of farmable soil left on the planet, mm -hmm. which means that, you know, we'd all be better get really good at being breatharians or we'd better change the way <laughs> of growing food. Yeah. Yes, there are so, breatharians out there. Apparently there are. Have you ever met one? I, I knew a guy once who was who was trying. Okay. I, I have uh, met two people who say they knew a breatharian, but I've never actually come, come in contact with one face-to-face. -face. So what kind of responses are you getting out of the students? Oh, well, it's incredibly positive. I mean, I just outlined all the horrible stuff that's going on, but I, I tackled that point, and then I tell them what they can do about it. The uh -huh. fact that uh, systems of agriculture like biointensive grow 18 pounds of soil per pound of food produced oh, and nice. cut out the need for, uh, for nitrogen, uh, synthetic nitrogen fertilizers or for pesticides or herbicides. The fact that, you know, when they are eating... They're not just choosing what they want to eat based on what tastes good, but they're actually choosing the kind of world they want to live in. So it's really exciting because we tend to focus on teaching at-risk youth in uh, and underserved populations, places where people don't feel like they have a lot of control over their lives, especially the young teenagers, um, and showing them that they can actually be making a very real, very large difference in their own personal health, but also in, in the health of the entire planet, just by where they're sourcing their food is, is probably my favorite part of this job. Wow. Seeing that light go on in their eyes. That yeah. They're incredibly powerful people just because they eat. Wow. So, and they're getting it. And they're getting it. Yeah. Certainly uh, nice. not everybody, but by yeah. and large, the response has just been incredibly positive. We've got uh, really, really wonderful feedback from teachers over the last four years, school gardens that have started up after uh, we visit. And that's really important because uh, studies have shown that when young people have the experience of growing food, they're much more likely to eat, eat it. it. So I know. Isn't that amazing? Yeah. I mean, I it that. totally makes sense. It's interesting. It's not a gross green anymore. It's a, it's a green that you're curious about and that you want to try. Right. Yeah. Perfect. Okay, I'm going to shift gears here a little bit because I want to I want to kind of get an eye on what makes you tick. Sure. So a big part of what we do is we want to share failures as well as successes. So do you have a failure out there that um, you learned something big from and that you'd be willing to share? Yeah, definitely. <laughs> Probably my my most difficulties in this project have stemmed uh, from the DIY veggie oil system that I put in the truck. Um, which is definitely important to us because we don't want to keep supporting fossil fuels. But right. we've had some some big problems that have uh, have at times almost devastated us. Um, one t very memorable time, I was driving through Iowa on the way to Chicago, where we were going to be uh, one of the featured nonprofits at the Lollapalooza Music Festival. Oh my gosh! And, and yeah, and this was uh, this was a year after we started, so. We were still really, really small, and um, and this was definitely a big deal for us. We we're going to see like ten thousand people over three days or something, mm -hmm. and uh, and also um, it was a paying gig. Most of our oh, wow. things we teach for free, and so money uh, was and is fairly tight. So that was a big deal too. So I was on my way there uh, two days before the the festival was going to start, and. You know, all of a sudden, I just see uh, see fuel like fountaining 
um, or fountaining against my rear view mirror. And then I look Whoa. at the heat gauge and the heat gauge is off the charts and quickly pull over and the engine is just smoking. And um, one of my uh, radiator lines has come loose, which we use the coolant that runs through the engine uh, and gets very hot in the process to heat up our veggie oil so it's less viscous. Oh, interesting. Uh -huh. and, uh, and anyway, this line came loose and dumped all of our coolant and the engine completely burnt up. Oh. Yeah, so that was that was a big old disappointment. Right. Uh, we were on our way to the you know one of the biggest gigs that we've we'd ever had, and uh, and suddenly the engine is non-functional um, after getting it towed over to the to the mechanic, and about six hours of them looking at it, it it becomes abundantly clear that we need an entire new engine. Um, which at that point. Uh, we were basically supporting the project on our, you know, out of our savings. So we, we didn't have any money to buy a new engine. So it was suddenly a question of, okay, is this the end of Compass Green? Uh, is this worth it? And are we going to make it to Lollapalooza? We dealt with the first thing, which was Lollapalooza, and just rerouted our creativity. And that's one of the things that we teach is that, you know, with uh, with dedication, creativity, and knowledge, you can pretty much solve any situation. Nice. So, All right, great. So how did you solve it? Uh, for Lollapalooza, we called a bunch of farmers in that I knew of in Iowa and then also made some new farmer friends in Chicago. And we actually built a pop-up mini farm uh, in Lollapalooza on hay bales and straw bales and hanging potted plants. We had a whole array of all your herbs and favorite vegetables growing. And we made all of that happen in about 30 hours before the, <laughs> wow. the festival began. We are putting the finishing touches on it as the festival doors opened in the morning. Nice. Yeah, and that was awesome. It was, a, it was a total success. It ended up looking really beautiful. And then after that, um, went back and you know thought really clearly about whether or not we wanted to go through the hassle of fundraising a whole new engine, whether it was worth it, and decided that it, it really was based yeah. on the response we'd had. Absolutely. And we, uh, we got in contact with a bunch of people, and uh, actually it was David Bronner, who is the president of Dr. Bronner's Magic Dr. Bronner's, Soap. I was gonna uh, say. He, he's the one that bailed us out. He, uh, he threw down for a new engine, and we got back on the road and ended up coming out to the West Coast, which is where we're currently based. Nice. Nice. Yeah. I've been waiting to ask you this question. What drives you? You mean besides a 25-foot-long uh, mobile greenhouse? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> um, like, what's your big why? Yeah, I, I was thinking about that question earlier, guessing that you might ask it. And I wish that I could tell you that it was just my love for gardening. Uh -huh. um, but... I think that for me, there's really two parts that have to go with that question. One is what drives me and then what sustains me. Oh, uh, yes. I hate to say it, but I, to be honest, I am pretty well driven by some of the negative aspects of, uh, of what's happening in our agriculture system. Mm -hmm. You know, our bee colony collapse through the use of neonicotinoids uh, in pesticides. Yep. Um, food allergies happening because of genetically engineered foods, which are causing problems in some of the people who eat them and have those food allergies, but then also the 
increased use of pesticides and herbicides and uh, artificial fertilizers because of it. And so, and the fact that we're running out of farmable soil. So that definitely is something that's motivating me. I had a period where I was traveling through Central America and I saw the huge amounts of slash and burn agriculture that was tearing down the rainforest. Yep. And I, I thought, God, we've got to stop this. And it's really just because they're not using a sustainable agriculture system that they have to keep pushing further and further back. So that is what really drives me. But what sustains me, yes. what keeps me going, is seeing people light up when they realize mm. what a difference they can make just mm -hmm. by growing a few plants. Yeah. Seeing people light up when they taste uh, a tomato that is fresh off the vine and doesn't taste like ketchup. And, <laughs> yeah. You know, and, and seeing, uh, seeing people light up when they realize that they're part of the ecosystem and that they actually matter. So that's what really sustains me. Also, because I have this weird big greenhouse, all these cool people and very odd people come out of the woodwork whenever I park for more than 10 minutes uh -huh. somewhere. And so during the course of my travels around the US, I've met tons of people. Oh, I'm sure. Throwing food on rooftops, in, yep. you know, in uh, inner city situations, fighting against uh, against some corporate farms that want to turn everything into monoculture, keeping heirloom varieties alive. So I've been really, really inspired by the people I met as well. And and although I might be driven by some of the some of the negative things that are happening, yeah. um, what really sustains me is just all positive. Perfect. I, perfect. I I have to ask this as well. Um, do you happen to know Jen Nelkin with Gotham Greens in New York City? You know, I do know Gotham Greens, but I don't think I met Jen uh, myself. Um, my partner at the time, who I started Compass Green with, who after about a year decided that traveling and sleeping in a hammock in a mobile greenhouse wasn't exactly for him. Uh -huh. um, he, I believe, uh, knew Jen and, uh, and was in contact. Jen and, Jen and I went to college together here at uh, Arizona State University um, oh, back no in way. Uh, 02, 03, 04 in Gotham, Greece. I'm going to get her. I, got, I made a note. I'm going to get her on the show because she is just rocking it. They have over 100,000 square feet of greenhouses on office buildings in the oh Bronx in, in New York City. And it's, yeah. That so, is so cool. So when you, well, I would you were love to connect with her sometime. Yeah, yeah. So I'm all about education, and I have to know, is there one book that has most influenced your life? One of my favorite books that definitely uh, embodies a lot of my philosophies is The Alchemist, but if we're actually talking about really influencing my life, uh -huh. I think I'd have to go back to some of my really formative years, and probably The Brothers Lionheart by Astrid Lindgren. Oh, wow. I'm, Almost embarrassed to say it, but yeah, reading no, that at when I was like six or seven years old or something, yep. yeah, got a little bit of the uh, the older brother complex of just wanting to, you know, <laughs> say I, I, I am an older brother. I've got two younger sisters and mm -hmm. it became, you know, just established as my heroic role to try and lead them in the right direction and, and um, you know, go through trouble for them. So I definitely did get in trouble as a teen, but hopefully taught them a couple of better ways to do it. So yeah, nothing too profound. The Brothers Lionheart, just a wonderful little kid story. Fantastic, fantastic. So what one piece of advice do you have for our listeners? I would tell your listeners to go out and grow some food. <laughs> it's really easy uh -huh. it's really simple. It's a small thing. Seeds want to grow. They they do. They are little capsules of life that want to grow. And when you plant them, it's not a small thing. 
you're actually making a really large difference. Say you grow a tomato seed or even just a rosemary plant, which where I live in Oakland is largely decorative. The rosemary that you're getting from that plant or the tomatoes you're getting are tomatoes that have not been grown in Florida using virtual slave labor and picked when they're green and uh, loaded up with chemicals to artificially turn them red. You're taking that whole bit out of the equation just by plucking your own delicious tomato off the vine. So that would be my advice. Grow a little bit of food, <laughs> grow it sustainably, and for the rest, look to uh, your local farmers who are also growing sustainably and support them as a much, much bigger influence than people actually realize. Wow. Again, profound. Thank you so much. So what is the best way for our listeners to get a hold of you? How can they find you? Well, they can go ahead and, uh, and email me at info at compassgreenproject.org. Um, or they can check out our website, which is www.compassgreenproject.org. Or I've actually had to train myself to use social media. So we are on Facebook and uh -huh. Instagram and even occasionally on Twitter. On Twitter. Very good. So thank you so very much for joining us on the show today and sharing your experience. It's been a blast. Yeah, thank you, Greg. Absolutely. So that's it for today. Thank you so much for joining us on the Urban Farm Podcast. We hope you enjoyed today's episode of the Urban Farm Podcast. Remember to listen three days a week for tips, advice, and resources to help you on your journey with urban farming. You can find us on the web at urbanfarm.org or send us an email to podcast at urbanfarm.org. In the words of Vincent Van Gogh, great things are done by a series of small things brought together. Be encouraged that with each lesson learned and skill developed, you are one step closer in the direction of your dreams. Hey, Urban Farm Podcast listeners. If you're as passionate about preserving the bounty of each season as we are, hey, I canned my first peaches at the age of 18, and that was a long time ago, then you're going to love what our friends over at Denali Canning have in store for you. They're on a mission to spread the love and knowledge of food preservation, and they're inviting you to join the journey for free. Right now, Denali Canning is offering free canning lids to anyone who wants to dive deeper into the world of food preservation. Yes, you heard that right, absolutely free. It's the perfect opportunity for both seasoned canners and those curious about starting. Denali is about quality, reliability, and supporting the canning community, ensuring that you get the best results every time you preserve. So why not give it a try? Visit DenaliCanning.com forward slash free to claim your free lids and start your preserving adventures today. That's DenaliCanning.com forward slash free.